0: Good morning, Christian. How are you?
1: Very good. Thanks, Matthew. Uh, It's great to be here. Fantastic. So where in the world are you today? I'm in Vancouver today, but off to California and Brazil uh, tomorrow morning. So Well, thanks for taking the
0: time out to uh, talk us through uh, what's going on with the company. Um, and I think you're going to take us through your most recent PowerPoint presentation.
1: Yeah, it's uh, fresh off the presses actually. So it's a perfect time. I mean, it's the beginning of the year. It's a new year. It's an exciting one for us. And uh, I think as you see on the cover of that, it sort of says the 2018 report card. We had a big year in 2018, a lot of changes in our company and 2019 is going to be just as exciting. So. Uh, we'll give you a little recap of last year and then give you a picture of the company.
0: Wonderful. Okay, let's Take it from the top.
1: So we've got our usual cautionary statements on slide two. I won't really pause there, but on three, our report card for 2018. So At the beginning of 2018, we created Equinox Gold. It was the last week, basically, of 2017. And Ross Beatty brought in one of his companies, Anfield. Uh, we brought in Trek Mining, which had our Brazilian past-producing mine. And Richard Wark brought in Newcastle, which has the old past producing mine in California. So in one go there, we did a three-way merger. We put a similar philosophy and strategy together to create Equinox Gold. And we have a sort of Pan-American um, uh, profile at the moment. So we're in North America and South America. And our goal here over the next few years is to create sort of a, the next great gold mining company, even this morning, if you saw uh, Newmont and Gold Corp are getting together and doing another merger, you see another gold mining company being bought out so um, there is a real void here to create these sort of mid-tier and larger gold mining companies and Ross has done it over the years by creating Pan American Silver in Silver. Now he wants to end his career with sort of his last go round really on an active active investment is uh, Equinox Gold and he started his gold career on Equinox Resources and you know we're a reasonably young management team myself and four of the other guys who came in here to create this company. And um, our, we had the same vision here. Over the next three, four, five years, we want to create sort of that multi-asset gold mining company that is a go-to investment in our sector.
0: Very quickly, do you want to touch upon the the team at this point? I think we're probably skipping through to page twenty-one, but it's always kind of good to understand who's who's involved and who does what.
1: Yeah, no problem. Uh, page twenty-one. You know really, what we put together here is a combination of the three companies. And if the board of directors, I won't spend a ton of time on, but it's a fantastic board with lots of experience in growing and creating companies. And with Ross being the chairman and the leader, he's the largest shareholder. He owns about twelve, thirteen percent of the company, and he has an active involvement in strategy and financing, particularly. We run the day-to-day, but when it comes to big decisions, we get our largest shareholder and our chairman involved. And he's created companies in the past that have been very successful. I think I heard him say the other day he's created 15 public companies that have been very successful. And this is going to be his last active one. And then the management team, we're all in sort of our mid to late 40s, a couple in our sort of 50s. But we're kind of in that next generation, we think, where Ross has kind of you know, had his successes towards the end of his career. We're kind of coming through a few recent successes. Myself. Um, I've actually just come from uh, True Gold, which was a turnaround story in West Africa, a gold mine there that was sort of on hold that needed to be constructed and ended up being sold within 14 months for about six times the price that when we went in, which was a very nice return for shareholders in that period into 2016. And then previous to that, we helped create uh, Endeavor Mining which went from zero gold mines to five gold mines within five years. Um, I did that from 2011 to 2015. I was a CFO there, uh, based in Europe, but uh, working in West Africa again. And prior to that, I was involved with New Gold, helping to create New Gold, which went again from a single company up to sort of multi-asset, multi-jurisdiction. So we really do have a track record and belief in creating these multi-asset, multi-jurisdiction companies. Excellent. And then the team around me as well, uh, Jim Curry was the COO at Newgold. Um, he had four operating mines and he was building a big $800 million project at the same time. Peter Hardy, the CFO, was ex-Nev's son and he was with me at Truegold. Uh, Scott Heffernan was at Trugold as well. Who's an explorationist. He spent a lot of time in Africa and in South and Central America, as well as North America.
0: Tell so, tell me a little bit a bit more about Jim. Obviously, as the COO, obviously he's quite integral to the operation. What have you tasked him with actually delivering for you?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. Jim took on the full time role, say two months ago. I guess it is now. Um, he was involved as a consultant helping us on the Arizona project in Brazil but he really comes from an operator's background. He's worked and operated in mines. He's helped build mines, integrate mines, buy mines, but he really is an operator's operator. He gets a lot of respect from the teams on site. He puts in place and empowers um, general managers who basically are the captain of their own ships. So we look at each mine as being its own ship where they actually have to be responsible for everything they do down there. They're obviously accountable, but they're also responsible. And Jim has that sort of senior experience and leadership, uh, particularly from Newgold, where I did work with him actually over a number of years um, creating that company, but he's worked all over the Americas and Africa as well.
0: So he's going to kind of bring you into production, as it were.
1: Exactly. He, he's the guy there to make sure the operations are running well or getting up and running.
0: And, he, and he's hands-on, in-country, as, as and when, or is he working remotely? How does that work?
1: I mean, we do have our corporate office here in Vancouver. There's about uh, 16, 17 of us right now. Um, we will be based here, but we will go remotely to site when needed, basically. So uh, for us, obviously, we've got two sites in California, very easy to get in and out of. So uh, very accessible. And Brazil, he'll make a rotational tour in and out of there every month or two at the moment because it's a very critical time. Um, but he'll be hands on on site as needed. But I think the key to it really is you've got to find leaders out that manage and run your assets as well, that have the ability, the seniority and the leadership skills to run them with a lot of autonomy as well, because um, a COO or a CEO can only be out there for so many days a month per se. So
0: there's a, there's a team in place, uh, they're, they're managed quite closely um, by Jim and yourself, presumably. Yes. Um, no new hirings required to kind of get things over the line.
1: Yeah, Jim will take the lead responsibility. Each of the individual mines or projects will report directly to him. So he is the number one guy here in terms of responsibility, for sure.
0: Got it. And um, and what's Greg's role and you know, involvement?
1: Greg actually, um, interestingly, again, on, on the merger we did previously, Greg came in, he was the CEO of one of the previous companies that helped form and create Equinox Gold. Um, Greg's background is he was at Minefinders before, he was the CFO there, he was CEO Um, of two companies post-MindFinders and really has the ability to help us sell the story, develop the story, the strategy, um, the investor relations side of things as well as the corporate development. So he's also done a bunch of deals over the years and raised financing alongside those deals and is really uh, skilled in that area and has a good following in the market. So he's been a really nice complement to what I'm doing. Um, It allows me to spend a bit more time in operations with Jim and Greg has a bit more of the kind of investor relations, corporate development strategy approach to things.
0: Okay. So there's a little bit of investor relations and, um, and development, meaning potential acquisitions?
1: Correct. Acquisitions is a focus for us. We've obviously done a few over the last few years. Um, our goal here, as we said, over the period to about 2023, we'd love to be a million ounce producer. Mm-hmm. You know, with our current portfolio, we can be between probably 500, maybe 600,000 ounces. Uh, so we probably do need to buy at least two more properties or mines or companies along the way. Um, so far, we've kind of done one per year. And um, Greg, really, that will be his key responsibility and role is to actually find that next asset.
0: That's interesting. That's interesting. Okay. And and so he's, he's very comfortable with that institutional uh, lead, as it were, in terms of talking to and updating institutional investors. Um, but also, I presume, working with you in terms of any potential future raises. So, you, you feel you've got those, the skills in-house to manage the process.
1: Yeah, and I think it goes to our philosophy and how we run this company corporately as well. Is, uh, I certainly have the philosophy that you've got to have the best people possible around you. To be honest with you, I think you need to have people who are better than you in certain areas.
0: Yes. And
1: um, at times, I feel like each one of them is better than me in each of the areas they're sort of focused on, but you know what, that makes a stronger team. We challenge each other and guys like Greg who have run companies before, he's been CEO of companies, Um, but we work really nicely as a team and I can't be everywhere all the time and talking to everyone all the time. Greg is able to do that. Um, He can present the company at conferences, he can meet investors, Um, You know, he really has the ability to cover for me, in a sense.
0: That's that's great. It's just we quite often meet companies who um, have people who are very technically competent, or they're a promoter, uh, or they're a finance guy, but to have all the skill sets in-house, it's it's rare. I I guess you've got the luxury of uh, being a little bit further developed and uh, have a little bit more cash available to do that. So that's great news.
1: Yeah, I think that that's true, but I also think we have the philosophy that when we all came in, we, we all came in with that sort of long-term vision and philosophy, and we knew we would need those skills along the way. So we put them in place early days. We put in place an incentive and compensation structure that sort of reflected a small company to start, but allowed us to grow. And all the team is focused on the same uh, same goal at the end of the day and um, we all know that we need those skill sets early days. That's how you create a team in a company.
0: Okay, that's great. Okay, well, thanks for talking through the team. I'd like to say I think the board of directors speaks for itself. Some pretty big, big hitters in there. Um, Let's get back to your 2018 report card and um, pick it up from there.
1: Yeah, so if we go back to slide number three here, the report card, you know, very quickly to go through this, we did that merger to create Equinox Gold at the end of 17. So we ended up basically integrating them all the early part of the year. But we were building the mine in Brazil called Arizona. Um, It's on track for commercial production around the end of quarter one. You know, it could be uh, in April there. And um, we've also been exploring while we've been building that mine this past year. So we had launched into construction at the beginning of the year and it's tracking very nicely into the first quarter of 2019. The second one there is Castle Mountain. That was the other asset that came in. It's in California. It's a past producing mine as well. Um, We put out a pre-feasibility study in the summer this year, in 2018. And it basically shows a 200,000-ounce producer for 16 years. It's a fantastic mine in California. Um, It's right on the Nevada border. Um, You do not find many of these scale and size and and cost-based type assets, uh, particularly in the western U.S. these days. And um, it's got lots of exploration potential as well. So both of those are past-producing mines that are brownfield reasonably easy to restart and put back into production. So once Arizona's in production in quarter one this year, we plan to launch into construction of Castle Mountain probably quarter two or three this year. So you have a nice little runway of projects. One of our other objectives for the year was to acquire a producing gold mine. So we bought the Mesquite gold mine off New Gold in quarter four in October. It produces 140,000 ounces a year, so a nice producing base. So we have one producing mine already, Arizona being the second one coming in soon. Then we've also increased our reserves and resources and really valuation for a lot of these companies in our space is, is based on your reserve base. How long can you be producing this kind of gold? Well, we've increased our reserves to 5.7 million ounces or 480% in the year through both adding Mesquite and adding the reserve base of Castle Mountain. Um, and then the other part of it, we also are quite disciplined in a sense. We had some smaller assets and we said we want to monetize our portfolio, focus on the core larger gold assets. So We spun out our copper assets into a separate privately held company that we own 40% of and our current shareholders own 60% of. We plan to relist that on the stock exchange at some point in 2019. And it has five copper assets, mostly spread around South America. Um, but also, uh, um, two of the discoveries coming from David Lowell, probably the greatest discoverer of copper porphyries of our time in the last century, basically. And he's still involved in the company. So a really exciting private company that will come back to the market soon, we hope. And then we sold our little small mill in Peru, which was uh, for about 15, 16 million. So that's really where we, what we did this past year and what are we planning to do in 2019? So we put out guidance. So it's the first time we put out guidance for the company. Um, we'll be producing, but around 250,000 ounces at you know, between 900 and $950 an ounce, all in sustaining costs for the year. Um, that will really be made up of Arizona ramping up into production around the end of quarter one. We will be producing you know eighty five to one hundred and five thousand ounces there at about eight hundred and fifty dollars all in sustaining cost. Um, we would like to do some more exploration there for this year, and that will maybe come in the second half of the year when it's cash flowing. And then the second part of the actual guidance really comes from Mesquite in California, so it'll produce roughly one hundred and fifty thousand ounces at nine fifty to. $1,000 an ounce all in sustaining costs. So you have two producing assets producing that roughly 250,000 ounces of gold. Okay. So the last uh, small parts of this, this plan for 2019, Castle Mountain, it'll go into uh, construction in the second half of the year. We're just finishing off the engineering and permitting and financing for phase one. It's a small build, 40 to $50 million. Um, it'll produce about 50,000 ounce a year, but we plan to be in construction on that the second half of this year. Um all looking good. It's in uh, again, in California, there, near the Nevada border. And then se- separately on that on the corporate side, we will continue to look for acquisitions. We're a little bit more go slow at the moment on that strategy because we're integrating the last one. But in the second half of this year, we certainly will be looking more actively at acquisitions. And the other interesting part is we would like to continue to refinance and improve our balance sheet. Um, we've used some debt funding to buy Mesquite yeah. and also to build Arizona, but they're separate debt structures. and, One of them certainly is a little higher cost. So the goal is, with our core banking group of European and Canadian banks, we would like to see it rolled into one credit facility at a lower cost. And that's one of the advantages of being a mid-sized company. You have a better cost of capital. And then ultimately, we will be considering a a U.S. listing at some point along the way. We are also a very U.S.-focused asset base at the moment. And one of our goals here is to keep our GNA at a very low uh, level versus industry peers. And I think we've done a very job at the moment. We're probably give or take $40 an ounce in terms of g cost. And I'll just flip on to uh, page five.
0: Yep, please carry on.
1: So on five, I'll go through this really quickly, but it just gives you a nice pictorial of our growth profile. I've just described it in words, but this really gives you a picture of it. Uh, this past year in 18, we produced 26,000 ounces because we own the scheme for two months. It will have two mines producing in 2019. That'll produce roughly 250,000 ounces. We'll have three mines producing in 2020, which could produce roughly 300,000 ounces. And when you get to the second phase of Castle Mountain in California and build that, it'll be producing 200,000 ounces, which will take us all the way up to close to 500,000 ounces a year. So we've got a nice portfolio and growth profile. We don't need to acquire anything. Obviously, we'd like to be slightly more diversified and larger than 500,000 ounces in three assets, but we don't need to do anything if the market doesn't support that. Turning on to slide six, You know, what is the the valuation, you know, um, play here? Uh, We've really come in the last year from a single asset development style company, which often they trade at discounts, as we all know. And, you know, we use the main multiple of price to net asset value as our primary valuation metric. Of course, we look at all the others as well. Um, Most of the developers tend to trade in that 0.4, 0.3, up to 0.5, 6, 7 sometimes, depending on whether they're permitted and financed. We've been trading, give or take, in the 0.4 to 0.5 range, as you can see on that graph. Um, One thing that we do believe really strongly is you do see a re rating as you get into production, become a junior producer, then you become an intermediate producer, which is probably 250,000 ounces of annual production. And then obviously, one of the leading intermediate producers over the longer term can be trading the multiple range of, you know, one times, maybe a little higher than one times uh, price to net asset value. So we think, even with the gold price staying where it is today, and with the business plan and profile we have, there is a potential for a real re-rate over the next sort of 6, 12, 18 months here.
0: Okay. If I if I look at, let's take a look at last year. Obviously the market the market had a big impact. And this year I think people are hoping for the price will do something here. You know, last year you started at whatever, 135, 140 level, ended the year a little bit down sort of, I think, we 105, something like that. The market was tough, but you guys were doing some great things in there. but I'm interested to see what your view is, because I you know we hear various excuses as to why shares haven't performed. what What was your take on the market last year?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's probably two parts to that. I think the market is just generally tough again last year. I mean, access to capital was extremely difficult. There's a lot of smaller mid-sized companies that just weren't able to get financed. Um, I think we had the luxury of having a Ross, Beattie, Richard work behind us, um, and a few key core shareholders long term. You know, Lucas Lundin's even one of those shareholders, and it allowed us to have access to capital to continue to develop and build on the strategy. Yeah. The challenge we did have, I think, is the market was basically not interested in gold. Yeah. Uh, when you look at gold's performance and even our share performance. Really, when we closed the merger at the end of 2017, it was just below a dollar. I think our share price, our share price is just below, above a dollar right now. So I'd call it a fairly static or flat year. And it's interesting. I looked at the GDXJ recently. I looked at gold and I looked at our peers. And you know, I think gold was down uh, 2% or something over the year. Our peers were down 35%. We were down about 8%. I think maybe it's 5%. Yeah. And then you look at the GDXJ, and I think it was down 15%. So overall, it was a really tough year in gold. And you had cannabis companies flying high. You had Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies flying high. Um, the main markets were doing really well. But you've really seen in the last three to six months, I think, a rollover in some of those markets. You know, A lot of that speculative money that was jumping into those alternative-type investments has sort of realized, oh, Bitcoin isn't $20,000 of Bitcoin now. It's 3500 or 3800 Uh, Cannabis, you know, how much of that is really going to be exciting here in Canada when it's uh, been legalized? Really, it's still the same market. It just happens to be it's more formalized now, and um, I think a lot of those gains have already been taken out of the market on the speculative bubble, and they're coming off now. Yeah, and I think you're seeing the main markets. People are looking for safe havens, alternatives, other places to put their money, and and slowly gold's getting a little bit more of a bottom and a bid, and. And I think our belief is over the next sort of few years here, gold will find a bit again. It seems to have been a bit stronger in the last six months of this past year. And uh, we're building a strategy that will really take advantage of that. We don't need gold price to move. But if gold price moves, that's kind of the cherry on top of the strategy. Uh, we're going to build a great company no matter what the cycle does. But I really do think we're one of the beaten up sectors out there.
0: Yeah, that, that, that's for sure. You know, as you say, there's um, companies who've got way more than 30% uh, down on a on, on year and it's um, and they have found it very difficult to raise capital. But just something you said there, um, you, obviously you're saying we don't need gold price to move, but obviously it's nice. Um, yes. Yeah, it was, it, was, it was great. And you have the luxury of having access, of having had access to capital and potentially continuing to have access to capital because of the names associated. So you, you're looking at doing things like potential acquisitions. That's if and, if and when something decent comes up and build, building up that uh, resource number. But what else, what else do you think you could be doing this year to maybe get people interested in you? What, what, what are, if I look at last year, you've delivered some great, great things, great catalysts. The market was depressed. People, but people weren't interested. Do you think those things last year will start bearing fruit for you this year?
1: I really do think um, part of it is with building a company, it's a little bit of a show me story in a sense. Um, a lot of investors don't want to jump into the risk when you're building a mine, when you're doing an acquisition and integrating it. What they want to do is start to see that that actually is working. And I think again, we've got two past producing mines Uh, The one that's coming into production in Brazil, they want to see that it's actually ramped up and working well. Um, That will be happening in the next sort of three months, you know, a little bit longer to see the results coming through in the actual public markets. Um, They'll want to see that. I think they want to see that Mesquite is actually continuing to deliver on what it has been doing over the last 10 years. Well, at least we put out our first set of guidance so they can kind of see what we think it will do. But I think it's also in this market, particularly in gold mining, There have been a lot of hiccups over the last five years, and I think a lot of single asset producers have really struggled. You know, when you have one jurisdiction or one asset and something goes wrong, you don't have the ability to be diversified and weather those storms. And I think we've now got that portfolio that we can start to, number one, weather storms and prove things. Uh, When one thing's not working perfectly, you've got the other asset that's actually offsetting it. And we will have two of those now by the end of quarter one, basically, and the third one coming in in early 2020. So I think part of it's just delivering on the strategy that we're saying. I, I agree with you, we've achieved a lot last year, but people want to see you pouring gold, making cash flow, and actually putting it onto your bottom line.
0: I think, that, I think that's right. So what's your time horizon in all of this? Because you, again, you, you, you made reference to the fact that if, if the price of gold doesn't move this year, it's not a problem for you. Are you looking a year out, two years out, three years out? You've kind of got a big company mentality. So, what does well, that convert to?
1: I would say our, our time horizon really, and, and you'll see in here, we've sort of set by around the end of 2023, we'd like to be a million ounce producer. Um, so, that's a few years out. Um, we want to make longer term decisions and, uh, and, and not just try and perform to the markets on a quarterly basis, because I think sometimes you can uh, make poorer, longer term capital decisions when you're just focused on a quarterly delivery schedule. And that's what the markets tend to be focused on. Um, having a core Cornerstone shareholder like Ross BD and Richard work between them, they own about 20% of the company. Um, they want to deliver on a sort of five-year plan, not just on a quarterly or an annual plan here. And I think that will allow us to have the stability and the focus over that period of time. Um, obviously, uh, we do need to deliver quarterly, but I think also we need to make sometimes the longer-term decisions, which are a little more painful in the short term. Um, you know, taking on a challenged asset like we did in Arizona and actually rebuilding it takes time takes capital, it takes people. So um, I think the long-term strategy has got to win out over the short term.
0: And Do you think that one of the advantages of your business is you have the luxury of access to capital? It allows you to be able to have a slightly longer-term horizon than, than, say, some companies have.
1: It it absolutely does. um, Because, you know, you look at what Ross did when he built Pan American silver. I think he said he did it over sort of 15, 20 years in a sense. And um, he still owns all the shares. He know, I think he owns more shares than when he started there. And he said his exit strategy at Pan Am is death. <laughs> he's in his sixties. So he's hopefully got quite a few years left there. Um, people have asked him, what's your strategy here on this one? He said, it's the same thing. I want him to have a great gold company, a great silver company that basically he gives to his charities or, or leaves to his estate effectively. That gives management a real set of confidence and belief in the people behind this have the patience uh, to deliver on a long-term strategy. Trust me, on a day-to-day basis, he's very impatient and we, we focus on trying to get things done because you, you can't just focus on the future and hope it all happens in the short term. You gotta keep focusing on getting things done on a uh, monthly basis to deliver on that strategy, but you can't lose sight of that goal.
0: So that, that kind of begs the question, if that's Ross's attitude, I mean. And we have talked a little bit about the management yourself and the management team. I and mean, how have you guys been incentivized? Have you got long-term incentives uh, in the in this company? You know, again, some of the- some companies struggle uh, because they have short- short-term holds, short-term incent- incentivization, or it's just time-related rather than success-related. I mean, how-, how have you guys set that up?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's probably two parts to that, and we've been really focused on it and. If you've been following our industry over the last few years as the markets have been weak there's certainly been a rebellion by some of the large institutional type shareholders i know a particular one or two out of new york that have been pretty upset with executive compensation so what we did when we first came in here we said to the whole team we said we want to be shareholders and owners of the shares so we bought shares on the day we entered this company um i've probably put in 1.6 1.8 million dollars myself um i know greg has put in you know, not far off that number and the rest of the senior management team put in a proportionately large amount of money and none of them are seed shares or discounted shares. They are at the same price we've done financing at. So anyone else who's come into our stock has got them at the shares at the same price. So we have probably close to $5 million invested in this. And for us being young guys who haven't had, you know, a huge win, it's big money for us. So we've got skin in the game. A lot of people talk about it. But they don't put their own money into it. So that's number one. Number two is we do have a long-term incentive plan, and it's a diversified plan. Um, at each year end, we'll look at basically awarding you know some options, but we focus on things like RSUs and performance share units, which you know the performance share units in particular, don't vest for three years, um, and they have a very much are linked to shareholder returns, you know, and total shareholder returns. So we have our own shares and we have a structure that links us to that. And our salaries are, in the fourth quartile. Um, it's all public information. You can go out there and look at it. We're in the bottom quartile, but we think over the long term, we're going to outperform and out deliver and we're willing to wait for that.
0: Okay. That, that's, that's really comforting. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, yeah. So just get, again, getting back into um, the detail of the presentation here. Um, I think you're about to get, go into each of the three projects. Is that right?
1: Yeah, I'll walk you through starting from the Producing Mine on page 7, the Mesquite Gold Mine. There's a nice photo there of uh, it's a pretty dry sort of desert-like area there in Southern California right near the Mexican and Arizona border, been producing for 10 years in the last go around, but Newmont was producing there, you know, 30 years ago. So this has been going for a long period of time. It produces roughly 140-50,000 ounces of gold a year. You can see our guidance there of about 150 at uh, just below $1,000, all in sustaining costs. And one of the key things we're doing, and if you look at the next slide on slide eight, is we're looking at what opportunities do we have here to, number one, extend mine life, but also to integrate it and fit it together with our mine up the road in California being Castle Mountain. Now, part of the reason we wanted to buy Mesquite is it's a producing mine 200 miles down the road from Castle Mountain.
0: Got it. Okay, and just so, just um, very quickly, you you don't talk about grades here. So, I'm, what, what can yeah, I take from that? It's a low that?
1: grade run of mine, heap leach operation. Um, very typical of sort of the Nevada style, California style, Western U.S. Uh, very amenable to heap leaching. So, it's ranges between 0.3 and 05 grams per ton. So, okay. that's pretty normal for that type of mine in that part of the world.
0: So, obviously, the ASIC being around nine hundred bucks at the moment. What are you going to look at the economics again, or re- revisit those economics and sort of see how you can shave
1: that and cost? Yeah, I mean it's it's run fairly well in terms of, of an operation. Uh, a few areas that we're certainly looking at are: are there some synergies with Castle Mountain? Um, we believe we'll be able to do some joint purchasing. You know, you're buying cyanide for two mines. You're going to get a better price. So I've experienced that in the past. So things like that. You're going to have equipment sharing on occasion. You'll probably have some administrative costs and some uh, people sharing between the sites and also um, we're looking at the overall leaching you know is there a slightly more efficient way to manage the solution or to optimize the leaching um, there are also some very low hanging fruit opportunities around the site that will potentially help lower costs so back in the day when newmont was mining here they left behind i'd call them waste dumps but they're basically ore grade waste dumps yeah. these are These are uh, dumps of material that effectively are at 0.3 grams per ton, which is our ore grade material. Um, They were mining stuff at sort of a gram and above. So back in the day, the higher grades allowed them to leave behind this lower grade material, which is now great for us. So it's already sitting there. It's obviously amenable to leaching and it's got shorter hauls. It's basically free dig and you'll be able to pick it up, put it on leach pads and leach it. So all those sorts of things are, Going to give us the ability to look at our cost base and maybe shave a bit off the costs.
0: Okay, okay, understood. And, you, and you're surrounded, if I look at some of the other names around you, I mean, in terms of comps here, just to kind of uh, back up that, as you say, it's uh, pretty standard for that region. Um, who, who are some of the other players in the, in the area?
1: You know, Round Mountain's uh, probably the best example that Kinross has there, and it's basically similar grades. Um, you've also got uh, SSR Mining, which has a mine in the region, which is again similar grades, similar type, cost base, and you know Mesquite was probably the best comparable to Castle Mountain. Um, and now that we put the pre-feasibility study out on Castle Mountain, it shows that they're both very similar mines, kind of in that 0.3 to 0.6 gram per ton, very similar cost, Because what they are is a big dirt-moving exercise. We are miners. You got a bunch of trucks. You got a small, reasonably simple plant. So if you can move your dirt efficiently and basically extract the gold efficiently, it's going to make you pretty good money at this point in time in that part of the world.
0: Yeah, it's it's just it's interesting when you talk with retail, high-nourth family office type investors, they're understanding what gold is the higher the grade, the more money you make. But at the end of the day, the ASIC is the ASIC. It's the process you employ. So there are kind of almost two, two models where it's small scale, high grade, or uh, ultimately, I say a uh, earth-moving exercise where you can process yeah. efficiently. I guess you're not I speaking.
1: Mean, just looking at that question in particular, I mean, a very high-grade underground deposit. You know, I'm going to use a country example as Brazil because there are a reasonable number of them. And narrow veins can be very tricky to mine. It may be a high grade, but if you miss that vein or you dilute, you can end up having a lot of problem making money from it. We have a nice big open pit. It's much more amenable to um, you know, simple mining. You know, you're not going to run into those problems in the same degree as you would underground necessarily.
0: It's just l- less technical, you know, step and repeat ver- versus having to, I say, intellectually chase something underground.
1: Absolutely.
0: Okay, yeah. understood. Okay, so that's Mesquite, uh, and I'm looking at page nine now, which is some of your yeah. So page nine just gives
1: you a layout. Some of the past um, uh, pits we're still mining in the areas uh, that are in color there: Brownie, Big Chief, Vista. Um, You can see the leach pads, they're all very close together. We have some exploration opportunities um, basically to the right-hand side of this map. Uh, You can see the highway running through there, Highway 78. We have now got some exploration permits to the right-hand side of that highway and at the edge of the rainbow pit there to the right. We will be looking, in addition to these waste dumps that we hope to add to the reserve life, looking at some exploration as well. Um, So we've got lots of potential at this site.
0: Okay, I think we're, now we're, we're uh, moving down to uh, Arizona.
1: Yeah, so a very different part of the world, uh, Arizona down in northern Brazil, it's right on the Atlantic Ocean. It's only a couple of kilometres away. You can sort of see in that photo on page 10, uh, the light jungle area around it, sort of farmland and light jungle. It's not in the Amazon jungle like uh, um, some of the mines, you know, it's a reasonable distance from there. It's in Maranhão State. Um, it produced for about four years between 2010 and 15 and it will produce roughly you know, 95,000 ounces of gold in 2019, but on average after that, it should be producing about 135 to 40,000 ounces of gold per year for a full, full year. Uh, this mine was built in 2008-9, right during the financial crisis, if you remember. It was really tough to get access to capital. They built it on a shoestring. They built a plant, they started mining, but they didn't build the whole plant. So they never put in a crusher and the type of equipment needed to handle hard rock and boulders. So they took the easy material, put it through the mill, made some money. The gold price started falling. They hadn't built the front end of the plant. The capital structure was challenged. So when they got to the point in 2014 there, they ended up shutting it down for basically lack of funds and making money. And they started accessing harder material, which they needed to build the front end of a plant and a crusher. So that's the key thing that we've done is we've taken all this infrastructure power line back end of a plant a camp all the skilled labor force in the region and we've said we can take that and we'll build the front end of the plant with a crusher so we can crush hard rock yeah. and we'll get it up and running within about 12 to 15 months and that's what we've been doing over the last year and we'll do it for half the capital cost and that's the really attractive part of this if you were to build this greenfield it probably cost you 200 and say 75 million dollars we're building it for just over 150 million dollars, so um, you're kind of getting it not quite half price, but similar.
0: But are you, have you picked up any? I'm assuming this is the both these projects are all fully licensed, permitted, nothing, no issues there. Is that right?
1: This is yes. Okay, yes.
0: And then the 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 second point is: Have you inherited any liabilities? Have you have you have you bought the company or the
1: project? Um, I mean, you're, you're in mining, so you're always managing your environmental and health and safety type of risks and community relationships. Nothing on the balance sheet is what I'm asking. There's nothing. Oh, in terms of, uh, there's a small $15 million um, uh, facility to Sandstorm, which provided some of the original financing uh, back when this mine was built. So we do technically owe them $15 million. It can be repaid in debt or equity or in cash or equity. At, at some point in the distant future. I think half of it comes due in mid-2019, half of it in mid-2020, so a reasonably make, small amount of money. But you got
0: cash available for that, so yeah. it's not a concern.
1: Page 11, just a nice pictorial. I mean, this is the front end of the plant. This is where the capital really is going in this build. You can see a, a building on the left in the top left-hand corner of this picture. That is the old building. It did not have any of this uh, mill structure on the right, so it's a huge amount of equipment that's gone in. That will allow us to process all that harder rock.
0: Phenomenal. Right. And what, what is this? I mean, how much does this kit cost and what's it actually... It's, it's well, What you're
1: actually looking at is probably going to cost you between $50-$60 million for that, the mill structure. You've got a sag mill and a ball mill there. Um, that's you know, roughly a third of the capital that we're actually spending this at this point in time. Phenomenal. Okay.
0: Great. And how many people do you employ? at the
1: moment we're probably at about 800 people it was a thousand or so at the peak during construction we'll probably come below 800 maybe 700 or so uh we're in full employment during the operations
0: and then predominantly all local
1: basically all are going to be brazilian uh, there might be one or two expats in due course but uh uh virtually 70 75 percent of them will be local as well we really want to employ local communities and workforce i mean Um, It's only to our benefit to be working with local stakeholders, providing income, employment. uh, Also, local knowledge comes into the company. So if you go on to page 12, this is what really excites us about this property. I mean, rebuilding a plant and and a mill and that, you know, that's not rocket science. It takes some money, capital and time. But What's exciting is we see this as a district or a camp. We have 2,000 square kilometers of land in here. This is massive. On page 12, you basically see a small proportion of that. This is basically their mining permit, where you can see the Piaba open pit in the middle, about four kilometers long. That's where we're mining the gold from. Um, Tadajuba on the left there, another five kilometer area, which is in that pink, which is basically gold and soil anomalies. There's been a little bit of drilling in there. Um, We think there's a nice structure that goes all the way along here for about 10 or 15 kilometers. We think you could end up doubling this mine life by drilling out Tadajuba. Tatajuba, as you can see, a couple of drill holes there in the top left, just to put it in perspective. This is a one and a half gram deposit in Piaba where we're mining, but Tatajuba so far is showing us 13 grams over 35 meters, 2.7 grams over 56 meters right near surface. So much better grades, a couple of kilometers away from our current plant and pit.
0: And how much data have you uh, acquired along with this uh, acquisition?
1: Yeah, it's actually an incredible amount. There's about 100,000 meters of uh, drilling, and the core that's sitting in the core shed sitting right on site. So um, you've got all the historical drilling still there. So we're capitalizing on that, um, basically helping us understand our current deposit, but also helping us understand the other potential deposits in the area. So we've been out drilling Tadajuba. We've spent a few million dollars drilling it this past year. We've been drilling to the east. And once we're in production, we have a bit more cash flow, then we'll go back and actually drill off Tadajuba. And uh, we've been acquiring the land as well, the surface rights to that one as, as well. So we really think the future of this Arizona deposit is towards Tadajuba, as you can see on the map there. And I
0: guess in terms of drill rigs, etc. I mean, are you running your own drill rigs or are you buying those in? I mean, how's that work?
1: No, we'll be contracting those in, we'll let the specialists and the experts do that. Uh, that's r- not really our, our game. We're miners.
0: Right. And this this land, I mean, if we look at the topography here, it seems relatively flat, water free. Uh, there's any, any encumbrances technically for you?
1: Um, it's, it's relatively flat, high points, give or take 20, 30 metres, so very low. Um, you can see the ocean on the right. There's you know, some inlets coming in from the Atlantic Ocean. So, those are sort of limitations to the eastern side. Yeah. Um, there is water. There's a rainy season, which is sort of just coming to that now. But March, April are the key rainy months of the year. Yeah. You get up to three meters of rain there. So, it's a lot of rain. Yeah. Um, it's a lot like those tropical parts of the world where you get those sort of heavy concentrated rain months. And yeah. then you get six months of dry, where you get virtually no rain.
0: Very short rainy season there, and I noticed the the ASIC here is is lower than uh, the, the the previous projects. So obviously, yeah, it's can't be that bad. Um, and then you kind of got some lower grade activity off to the. Well, I say lower grade. I'm looking at eighty four point three in one particular.
1: Yeah, that hole that hole actually I think was the fourth or fifth best hole in the world this year. So right. <laughs> it's not a go. bad uh, drill hole. Uh, yeah. There's Little pockets of gold we think to the east there obviously it peters out as you hit the ocean there but uh, there's pockets of gold to the east there is gold to the west in Tatajuba. Um, then you step out 10 or 15 kilometers and there's probably another potential two or three deposits out there so we see this as potentially a multi-decade mine that mm-hmm. give or take 130 to 50,000 ounces and if we find enough gold and extend the mine life long enough or we go underground which will be the next page um, we will look at maybe do you double the plant capacity here? do you look at adding more power and actually doubling the plant capacity and you know I know Ross would love to turn this into a two to three hundred thousand ounce producer rather than one hundred and fifty yeah. you know and if you go underground and you find these extensions along strike, there is a potential here that you have enough ore that you could increase the capacity
0: that's interesting i mean and and just so just touch upon the um, infrastructure. Um, what do we like for roads, power, water? Yeah, the usual. What? How's that? It's like? a
1: remote site. You know, it's a good six-hour drive from Belém, which is sort of the capital of the north there, or São Luís. Yeah. Uh, the roads are good. They're paved. They're they're federal and state roads. Right. Power line goes right to site. Um, it's hydroelectric power. It's yeah. You know, other than Quebec and BC, I don't know where you get cheaper power. It's probably seven to nine cents a kilowatt hour. Which is very cheap and it's probably a few cents more expensive than in Canada here, but one third of the cost of what I experienced in West Africa. So very, very good power and it's very reliable so far. I'd say it's been ninety nine point something percent reliable. So very, very good.
0: Okay. okay. I know certain parts of Brazil have struggled with the reliability around hydro, yes. so that's that's good. That's good to hear. Um, so and, if, and and if we and if we kind of go to page thirteen, you're, you start talking about the under, underground mine potential here?
1: Yeah, so this is a, obviously a long section and it's basically the same Piaba open pit that you can see there in the gray. So that's where our reserve pit is. So that's the million ounces of reserve. Yeah. But there's been some historical drilling down to about 600 meters of depth. That pit, the reserve pit, goes down to about 200 meters. About 200 holes have been drilled down below, below the pit level. I think all of them except for a couple of holes have hit mineralization so longer term we actually see the potential for an underground as well as an open pit here so uh, the geologists and the engineers have been taking the data that we have had to date they've been working on a sort of scoping study and a PEA in the background and I think what you're going to see over the next year so we'll start to flesh out the story and the understanding of the underground potential a little more but so far what it looks like is You know, and again, we just highlight here, there's roughly um, 5 million tons here at almost three grams per ton underground, and that's about 500,000 ounces of gold. We think there's a lot more gold underground there. Um, And considering our open pit is only a million ounces, you're already with almost very little drilling uh, at half that amount. And we really think there's potential that you kind of double the mine life by just going underground here. Needs a bit more drilling, it needs some more engineering work and study work, um, but we think the potential is there and if you flip to the next page uh, this is getting a little bit more technical but on 14 you can see the ore deposit there Um, these are cross sections that go across that long section i just showed you on the previous page and look sort of down the ore body and you can see sort of the the yellowy beige color down the middle or golden color down the middle that is the ore deposit it's nice structured deposit steeply dipping Um, you can see it go quite uh to depth there and it's probably between 10 and 20, maybe up to 40 meters in width at times. These are not little narrow, gra- narrow high grade underground <laughs> veins that you have to follow that weave through the underground. These are consistent, long, wide, uh, underground potential uh, ore bodies. And it makes for cheaper mining. It's competent rock, it gets quite hard as you go down deeper. Um, once you mine off that sort of softer surface material, you're into the competent material. And you have very cheap mining methodologies for underground mining there,
0: yeah, and, the, and the grades still remain very reasonable. Indeed, in, in, um, in fact, some the, the odd uh, large number in there, but they seem to be between you know one and three percent typically. With the you know the odd anomaly of being at you know nine point nine seven you know, there.
1: The big difference here is. Um, when you do see some of those really bonanza grade underground deposits, they're really narrow veins. We're talking like, you know, a meter in width or give or take yeah. Um, yeah. at 10 grams, where what we're looking at is 20 to 40 meters in width. And it's sort of three grams, some of it's four and five, but between two and five grams. Yeah. And you can mine that efficiently when it's that wide.
0: Just before we kind of, you know, move, move on again into, you know, uh, Castle Mountain. Um, Brazil has had a reputation a mixed repu- reputation for doing business it's been quite peaky it's been a brick country and then it's all of a sudden it's uh, doom and gloom and we've we've got uh, alternative politics coming through as well so how what's, what's your impression of doing business in Brazil and what's the future look like for, for mining in Brazil
1: yeah um just stepping back even further i mean i think any jurisdiction has its own risks in a sense i mean doing business in british columbia where i live um with the current government regime is just about as difficult considering no one wants to mine anywhere near them or in this province it seems these days even though we're a natural resource province where i find brazil is a mining country it's a mining friendly jurisdiction it's got a lot of big mining companies there um, the challenges tend to be there is bureaucracy Uh, There are sort of complicated tax regimes and structures, but really what you need to do is have the infrastructure and the overhead in a sense to manage through that. And what we've experienced so far is you're right, it was a brick country, it's fallen off. So it's had an underinvestment for the last four or five years. It's had the Olympics, it had the FIFA World Cup, all that building and infrastructure is gone now. So there's been a lot of hungry contractors and construction workers for us to hire. Um, A lot of the big mining companies in iron ore and some of the base metals have let a lot of people go over the last few years. We've been able to benefit that. We really believe that being counter cyclical is the way to go. When others are downing tools, not deploying capital down part of the cycle, we should be doing the opposite because we don't want to be building mines at the top of the cycle. You want to be building the bottom of the cycle.
0: Well, it kind of comes back to, I think was one of the key differentiators with you guys is the access to capital. It allows yeah. you to be counter-cyclical where others can't raise money, even if they see the same opportunity, they can't see uh, their way to finding the cash to be able to take advantage of that situation. So I think it, it, uh, that just keeps coming back to that for me in terms of the story that's coming through here.
1: It absolutely comes back to that. Um, you know, we, we know of other companies that started out a year, year and a half ago at a similar point to us, sort of single asset in that. Um, they're still in the same place. Right. We now have three assets. We have a good balance sheet and we have access to more capital to grow the business. I absolutely agree. That's one of the key things in the down part of the cycle. Um, and one of the faults of the cyclical industries like, like ours is at the tops of cycles. You have a lot of uh, people flooding in with capital and it has to get deployed. So it gets put into marginal projects, marginal teams, and it doesn't get put in, invested in the right places. Now's the time to invest in our cycle. And Ross Beatty is the master of investing against the cycle. Look what he did with copper in the 19 or the early 2000s. He was buying copper for cents on the dollar, and then he sold them all as copper peaked around 2007. Uh, we're planning to do the same sort of thing in terms of investing in the sector while it's still weak. Uh, we don't necessarily have any plans to sell as it gets stronger, but we're building a business for the long term. We build it now.
0: So to a question to that. So if you're looking at re- retail investors, you know, family offices, high net worths who are like coming coming into this, they can, they can follow the names, the, the Ross Beatties of this this world. They can buy into your argument with regards to counter-cyclical investment. But if they're coming in today. What are they? What's the upside for them? I mean, we've talked about valuations and getting moving from expiration into producer. You, you see some uptick there, but what do you say to those types of investors where the stock is maybe slightly tightly held by institutions who believe in the Ross Speedy story or your sorry your story? Um, how do we get the price moving?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think. In a certain way, we've built a, a good business um, despite the markets. And I agree with you, the price necessarily hasn't reflected that at this point because I said it's a show me story in 2019. And as an investor, and, and again, I put a lot of my own personal capital into this, you get a chance to buy the shares right now at the same price as Ross Beattie or myself. Um, you know, Ross has been buying shares as we've financed, and he's bought blocks of shares in the market. At anywhere from sort of ninety-five cents up to a dollar, can't remember fifteen or dollar thirty. So right in this range that we're at at the moment. So there is an opportunity to buy the shares exact same price, but I think the business is actually better in advance since he's been buying the shares. So you're actually buying it at kind of a greater discount. So it's an opportunity right now. And again, with two thousand nineteen being the show me year in a sense, and all these plans that we have to kind of show the mines are operating well. um, I think now is the time to be looking at it, or certainly over the next three to six months.
0: Okay, well,
1: let's, let's uh, see if that happens. Okay, so Looking at the last major asset here, if you go to slide 15, Castle Mountain, and in a way, this is a bit of the jewel in the crown at the moment, even though it's the third asset in our portfolio. Um, the pre-feasibility study we put out in August shows you 3.6 million ounce reserve, 16-year mine life, 200,000 ounce a year at you know sub $800 all in sustaining cost. Yeah. This mine should be owned by a major gold mining company. It's in Western USA. Tax rates have been reduced. Um, Trump, for all his tweets and problems, he's put in a lower tax regime. He's made permitting more efficient. At least, I'm not saying there's any guarantees you get your permits, but the regulators are actually been told to do their jobs and actually evaluate permits and either, you know, stamp them as being good or have if there's problems with them, they need to go back and uh, go back to the mining company. So. So, we've been really encouraged.
0: Tell me about this. So, so why doesn't a major own it? How much
1: did you pick it up for and how much have you got to spend to get it going? Yeah. So um, again, it's, it's a back to our philosophy. When we picked up the Brazilian assets, it had a bit of hair in Brazil and some challenges to restart the mine and raise some capital. This one is same sort of thing. You know, sometimes people look at California and say, oh, you can't mine in California. It's a very um, socialist type state. Guess what? I think it's one of the top two or three states in the U.S. that has gold mines in it. Ross has operated three gold mines there before. I've operated one there before. Um, So I think it's a bit of a misnomer. It's a past producing brownfield mine. And um, I think the two main question marks, I think, for the bigger investors when we did acquire this were permitting, which I think you know we really don't think it's going to be as big an issue as people thought it takes time to permit in the us you need to go through all your environmental studies and that but this has got an environmental impact statement and all we need to do for phase one is prove to the regulators that we're underneath the air emissions threshold so we're in the process of doing that right now we've submitted it already we're not crushing material this time and we're using more efficient newer mining equipment so we will definitely be under the old thresholds that were set back in the 1990s and 2000s. Right. Um, so we should be able to prove that. And then you need to prove to them that you're not discharging water into the environment. This is a zero discharge project. So that's pretty straightforward to prove to them. So there's two minor permits to get that back in place for phase one, which is the smaller mine. Um, and we have all the water we need, which is the other maybe risk area that people see with a, a California or a desert like mine is water access to water well there's old water wells here so we'll use those for phase one the water's there what it does need for phase two which is the 200,000 ounce producer which will cost us give or take 300 million dollars to build over the next you know uh, probably three or four years when we'll build phase two to this um, you do need to enlarge your footprint area of disturbance within your environmental impact statement area so there's slightly more advanced permitting required there we've started that already And once you're back into production with phase one here, the smaller mine, to actually extend that and um, basically change the footprint, it's a lot easier because you've shown you're a good corporate citizen. You've shown that um, you're staying within your environmental standards. Your health and safety is good. Your regulatory regime is being administered well. And the second piece to that basically is access to a bit more water for phase two. So we've identified water. We've got all the California water consultants out there and we hope to be drilling that, give or take mid-year this year and showing that that we know the water is there. We can actually see it. There's a huge aquifer that runs just south of the property. It's a matter of actually getting access to that land and getting the permits in place to go and drill it, so we're It's it's in
0: It's interesting, actually, Um, and without sounding like a broken record, again, your access to capital, I guess, put you firmly in front for acquiring this in the sense that you look like a group who can get this into production and not a group who are moving it along to a phase where you can offload it or exit or the need to exit because you'll never be able to raise because 300 million bucks is not something that's readily available to most.
1: Yep. Yep. No, absolutely. And I do think, you know, some companies in our sector have been very defensive over the last five years because investors have asked for that. Uh, the markets in a way have asked for that. and. Um, We've sort of taken that opposite approach where we were able to take this asset with a little bit of risk attached to it, granted, um, but manageable risk. And I think um, once we de-risk it, then people go, oh boy, you know, maybe it wasn't as difficult as it could have been. And maybe we should have bought it when actually Equinox bought
0: it. But as a blended portfolio approach to this, I, I guess Castle Mountain fits in nicely to um, to an overall story. for to deliver yep. certainty and assurances to the investors, which is, you know, I guess, key part of your job. Okay, so we'll, yep. let's get into it and tell us a bit about it.
1: So, 16 is probably the only page I really want to talk around because and, and, it's quite simple. It's a past producing mine, Viceroy operated there for 10 years between 1990 and 2000 or so. They shut it down when the Gold price hit 250 in the early 2000s. Um, operated it really well, we're a really good corporate citizen, so um, left us with a good legacy. On the right hand side you can see the diagram of the old pits, well we're going to go and mine again, it sounds very similar to Mesquite, some of the backfill material that basically is ore grade that was their waste. So we'll start with that, that'll be phase one, cost us 40 to $50 million, you put it into production so you're producing gold in early 2020 and it'll produce about 50,000 ounces of gold per year in that first phase. Second phase, you do a little bit of that extra permitting, which I just described to you on the the last slide. Uh, Give ourselves an extra couple of years to do that permitting. And then you go into phase two and spend that extra 250, 300 million of capital. But then you have a 200,000 ounce producer, you know, ever in 2021, 2022. And that goes on for sort of 13 years at 200,000 ounces. And there's tons of exploration potential here. This is a large potential system and deposit. But with 16-year mine life, there's no need to look for any more today. Yeah. Certainly over the next number of years, we'll consider going back and drilling. But
0: this, this is another uh, case of you guys using your skills in terms of heavy, mo- heavy movement of earth processing, low-grade ore. Yeah, Absolutely. So same story, different location.
1: Same story as Mesquite. The one difference is in phase two, we will build a small mill which will take the high grade. So um, there will be a a pocket basically of over three gram material, which we'll put through a mill. So it's too high grade to put on a heap leach where you're only getting 75% recovery and you're leaving 25% of the gold on the leach pad. If you get a mill, you'll get 90 to 95% recovery. So you're taking all that extra value and capturing it. By putting it through the mill. So the high grade material will put through the mill.
0: So and how much of that high grade material are you expecting? I mean, what, what data have you got? Um, it's
1: about two thousand four hundred tons per day. So it's you know, five percent of the actual uh, tonnage of material, but it'll produce thirty percent of the gold. So that gives you a, a value. Uh, play or arbitrage there by putting it through a mill you 're putting five percent of the material through the mill, but you 're capturing thirty percent of the gold nice. well that 's Castle Mountain in a nutshell, and, and really, I have one more slide there on slide 17 just to bring it all back together and you know what have we done and, and where are we heading? So very simply here we 've created america 's focused gold mining company with good sized assets that will take us into that mid-tier space mm-hmm. this year. Um, We have the ability within this portfolio probably to grow to 500,000 ounces of annual production over the next few years, but our ambitions are larger than that. And as you can see here, our growth strategy really is to aim for that million ounce mark. Um, We really think you can manage sort of four to seven mines efficiently. Uh, The value creation cycle is through that phase of being a one or two asset producers through to four or five or six. And you can create a balanced, diversified portfolio, ideally in the Americas, as you can see on this map. Yeah. But we are willing to look a little further afield. I mean, my team and myself had a lot of experience in West Africa. It doesn't mean we're going to go there, but um, certainly we'll look for gold and the great opportunities in unexplored areas and the regions. Um, but we'd love to stay close to home because it's always e- easier to manage a portfolio that's closer together.
0: Absolutely. Okay. Um, so that kind of that kind of summarizes the the, the projects and where where
1: you're at. Basically, our, our structure at the moment is we have about five hundred and fifty million shares outstanding. Uh, we trade on the TSX Venture Exchange at the moment. We'll certainly be looking to graduate. I think we're the second largest mining company on the TSX Venture Exchange. So we're we'll looking to graduate in due course here um, to probably a U.S. listing as well as a TSX listing, which gives probably more liquidity, more access to the shares for shareholders, also more visibility and. Ultimately, we'd like to get into some of these ETFs and some of the the more um, quantitative style funds um, as well. We're a little bit too small for that. You know, sub half million of half billion of market cap tends to keep you out of them. You don't have enough daily liquidity. But we've even seen already in 2019, you know, getting closer to a million shares a day in trading or a million dollars a day as well. Um, That is kind of getting on that threshold. And once you get into these ETFs, obviously you have these program buying, you have more following, you have more liquidity, and that starts to attract the bigger funds, the more generalist funds. And that's gotta be one of our goals here. So, you know, with that uh, type of structure, um, we certainly hope over the next year as we get into production, you'll start seeing that liquidity breach that level that is attractive. And right now we're very underheld institutionally. Um, we've covered well by banks as you can see on slide 19 we have eight analysts covering us um, even some of the larger Canadian banks are now covering us so you can get access to pretty good research on the company for a company our size I think we, we outperform in that sense and when you flip over to page uh, 20 you can look at our shareholding base the donut on the right there gives you a good picture Ross has about 12% in the high net worths another 7% is probably Richard Wark. Another two-ish percent, maybe three, is Lucas Lundin. So, between the three of them, they're between twenty and twenty-five percent. Very sticky long-term shareholders. Um,
0: yeah, but um, so what's but what's that doing? What's that doing for you? I, by the forty-one percent float, I'm assuming that's a that's a Canadian
1: retail float, is it? It's probably split between Canadian, U.S., and European retail. That's probably the three large proportions. We did have a lot of U.S. retail support in the early days. Yeah. And we also have a pretty good European support as well, particularly in um, continental Europe.
0: Interesting. German, Swiss, that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, German, Swiss, French, I would say.
0: What are your um, plans going forward? Can you talk about, you very, you know, there's 23% institutional, obviously that needs to change kind of going forward. You want some bigger blocks of investors coming through. You also need that liquidity, you know, which is potentially driven by, you know, retail activity. I mean, how are you going to manage that?
1: Yeah, it's it's been it's sort of one of the opportunities and maybe one of the weaknesses of how we created this company. We created it with a lot of entrepreneurs, wealthy individuals, uh, long-term investors, and it was always a little bit small and under the radar of called the mainstream institution. And we were building it the down part of the cycle. So a lot of the main institutions have no capital. So they're not investing in new names, new stories, new stocks. So as you can see on the left-hand side here, we've listed a few of the institutions. So BlackRock has just come in in our recent financing in October there to buy Mesquite. So they came from zero up to 4.9%. So they're probably the main first key cornerstone institution. in There, um, you've got Pacific Road and Sandstorm who were behind the Arizona asset in the early days. So still have four percent or so each. And then you have a few more funds here on the left-hand side at two to, you know, one and about half a percent to two percent each but it's still quite small and underrepresented from the traditional Toronto, London type or New York type uh, uh, investors in this space. So uh, we're out marketing, telling the story. We certainly have found a lot more interest in the story as we've delivered on what we said we would do last year, as we start to get over that half billion dollar market cap level, which we're at now. And I think what you'll start to see as we start to deliver on 2019 guidance, you'll see a few more funds start to pick away at stock as you get more liquidity, you can buy it in the market. If we have to finance in the future to build, say, the second phase of Castle, there's an opportunity, obviously, for someone to put some money in. Um, so we'll just have to see what those those opportunities are for the institutions to keep coming in.
0: Right. Okay. And that that would be that that's that's be well. You, you talked about taking out some of your or combining some of your debt um, products at the moment. So yes. I guess you're taking a look at equity and debt in the market, depending on what, which, which project you're financing and, and what stage you're financing that at, Yeah, there's some pretty big numbers coming up.
1: Yeah. So at this stage, um, we've certainly in this part of the cycle, you know, one of Ross's key philosophies was let's not dilute the equity holder too much. You know, him being the largest shareholder, he's got a really personal interest in that, uh, which makes a ton of sense. So we use some debt to buy Mesquite and some equity, but we use as much debt as we could. And we've also used a bit of debt to build Arizona. So as you consolidate those, we'll probably end up repaying some of them with cash flow obviously. But if our share price were to run significantly, certainly we'd look to take out some of the debt at a higher equity price. We just think the equity price has been too low to dilute shareholders too much today. So we definitely wouldn't want to take out that debt until the share price was a bit higher for sure.
0: Right. And I guess as things move forward, as you say, the cost of financing gets uh, cheaper, you'd hope. Yes. Get cheaper. Again, Absolutely, market conditions dependent. Okay. Um, thanks for running through that. Um, I, there are a few sort of su- supporting documents in the, in the appendix, which I, I guess people can flick, flick through. Thank you very much for your time today. That's been uh, w- wonderful to hear. And it's something that we've been wanting to um, hear about for the past couple of months. Um, it'd be great to kind of stay in touch every kind of quarter and sort of see where you've got to and if you are continuing to deliver on everything you say you're going to deliver. And, um, you know, we look forward to sort of seeing the success of the company as it, as it, as it grows and goes forward.
1: Yeah, no problem, Matthew. Thanks for, for your time as well. Uh, it's always a good opportunity to, to meet some new people and to reach out to new investors as well.
0: Thank you very much for watching our video. We do aim to give you informed and intelligent information with which to make your investment decisions. So if you liked what you just saw, please give us a thumbs up. And if you want to see more insightful, in-depth, honest and unbiased interviews, then please click the subscribe button. So, Thanks again for watching and we look forward to seeing you again soon.